Morning, how are you? Morning. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Proverbs 31. Today we're going to be standing for life. Proverbs 31 says, it's starting in verse 8. It says, open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth and judge righteously and plead the cause of the poor and the needy. The church has always understood its uh, responsibility to speak for the, the oppressed, the abandoned, the, uh, the poor, the needy, to speak for those that don't have a voice. And if there's one group that doesn't have a voice in our society, it is the unborn. We cannot hear their cries for life and for deliverance. The church has always stood for life. The early church, the medieval church, the Reformation church. Let me give you a few quotes. First, the early church. In a work called the Didache, or Didache, which means teaching, supposedly a compilation of the apostles' teaching, it says this, The way of life is this, Thou shalt love first the Lord thy Creator, and secondly thy neighbor as thyself. And thou shalt do nothing to any man that thou would not wish to be done to thyself. It continues. The second commandment in the teaching means, the second commandment about loving your neighbor, commit no murder, adultery, sodomy, fornication, or theft. Practice no magic, sorcery, abortion, or infanticide. The epistle of Barnabas was written shortly after the Didache. And it says this, love your neighbor more than yourself. Never do away with an unborn child or destroy it after its birth. Another early document says this, like other men, they marry and beget children, though they, they, meaning Christians, though they do not expose their infants, a common practice in the ancient world, because abortion was so dangerous, although practiced, was to have the child and then throw it out. Literally, throw it out. Um, One of the greatest fathers of the early church was Tertullian, and he said this, Our faith declares life out of death. Therefore, murder is forbidden once and for all. We may not destroy even the fetus in the womb. Amen? The medieval church continued its pro-life witness. The Justinian Code in the 6th century said this, those who expose children, possibly hoping they would die, and those who use the potions of the abortionist are subject to the full penalty of the law, both civil and ecclesiastical, for murder. The Council of Arles, 7th century. A heritage is by no means to be scorned or spurned, children being the greatest heritage of all. I can say amen to that. Therefore, any and all means must be affected to safeguard their well-being. Agratian's Decretums in the 12th century states, Fearfully and wonderfully made are all the works of the Almighty, the possessor of all reigns. He has covered each soul from the womb. To presume upon that sacred trust is but anathema. The Reformation was a time of great upheaval in church, as you know. And Catholics and Protestants were divided on many things, but on life they were united. 
Here is John Calvin, the great reformer. The unborn child, though enclosed in the womb of his mother, is already a human being and should not be robbed of the life which has yet is not yet begun to enjoy. Ignatius Loyola, a famous Catholic scholar, said this, Life is God's most precious gift to scorn it by any sort of murderous act, such as abortion of a child, is not merely an awful tyranny, it is a smear against the integrity of God as well. Suffer as we must, even die if need be, such rebellion against heaven must not be free to run its terrible course. So the church, from its earliest days, through the medieval period, what is often called the Dark Ages, which is a misnomer, but then the Reformation period, up until modern times, was pro-life. But then something happened, and now we see many in the church today who do not stand for life. Even worse than not standing for life, we see some in the church today, professing church today, who actually bless abortion, bless abortionists, and bless abortion clinics. What happened? Well, what happened is that in the 19th century, the Bible came under ferocious attack. And the credibility of the scriptures were compromised in the eyes of many, even in the church. And so, this was also the century that, that Darwin's uh, Origin of the Species was published. And as a result, many within the church began to abandon the biblical uh, foundations of life and began to question the integrity of the Bible, and especially the integrity of the early chapters of Genesis, the creation of man. <clears throat> so then by the 20th century, as a result of that, we see this phenomenon we now have in, in our day of a divided church on the question of life. So for 19th centuries, the church was united on life. And in our day, the church is now, the professing church is now divided on life. And it really goes back to a question of the authority of the scripture. Does the Bible speak on life and is the, and is the Bible true? The answer to both of those questions is yes. The Bible is true. Jesus said not one jot or tittle would pass away from God's law, but all would be fulfilled. And he said, God's word is unbreakable, unbreakable, irrevocable. He said that heaven and earth, earth may pass away, but his words would not pass away. So the Bible is true, but what does the Bible say about life? Let me just give you a few, a few reminders of the biblical witness to life. And let us go back to that despised book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. One of the most maligned chapters in the Bible. The most fundamental witness to life is the reality of the creation of man in the image of God. Genesis 1 verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When the word man is used in the generic sense, it means mankind, humankind, male and female. Both male and female being created in the image of God. What we see here in Genesis is the very methodical treatment of the creation. And in the creation, we see that man is set apart uniquely from the animal kingdom. Now, he's part of it in one sense, but in another part, he is distinct. And he's distinct because man is made in the image of God. He is distinct, we see in the the creation account, because God himself breathes life into man. And man is unique because he has a soul. And because he has a soul, he is able to commune and know his creator. So this makes him unique and valuable uh, in the eyes of God himself. But the second witness is not only in the creation of man, but in what is called the, the cultural mandate. Some people call it the family mandate, which is also here in Genesis chapter 1. In verse 28, Then God blessed them and said to them, Have 1.7 children and make sure you don't use up all the coal and gas on the earth. Oh, wait, wait. That's the uh, message Bible. Here we go. (laughs) Then God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with my divine image. And subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over everything that moves on the earth. So when God said, fill the earth, this is a value statement about humankind, about his image. He wanted the earth filled with people who resembled him, if you will, in their image. And as much as the dominion mandate mandates that as humans we care for the earth and protect the earth and we protect the animal kingdom. Yet humankind is set apart and distinct and superior because it is made in the image of God. And we are called to reproduce and fill the earth with his image. Somebody say amen. amen. And the, the anti-child mentality in our culture, the anti-child mentality in the church is fundamentally anti-scriptural. God loves children. God loves unborn children. God loves infants. God loves toddlers. I know that's hard to believe, ladies. God loves toddlers. Tweens and teens and adults and the elderly, God loves people because they are made in his image. And as far as God is concerned, the more the better. The more the better. Thirdly, after God creates mankind, we know the tragic story of the fall. Sin enters the world. Death and destruction. And so what does God do? He brings punishment on the world. And and he destroys the world. But he doesn't destroy the world completely because he spares Noah and his family. Noah, his sons, and their wives, right? 
And then God establishes a new covenant, if you will, not only with Noah, but with the entire earth. Here in Genesis, go over a few chapters to Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 9, we have what's called the Noahic Covenant. Verse 1, so God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Again, he reiterates the same, same mandate. Why is this necessary? Well, you could easily conclude that if God destroyed the entire human race other than one small family, you would think maybe more people's not a good thing, right? But no, he reiterates it after the fall and after his judgment on the world. Still, this mandate is in effect. Verse 2, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast on the earth, on every bird of the air, all that move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely, for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. From the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by him his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. This is the establishment of what is known as capital punishment for murder. Verse 7, and as for you, be fruitful and multiply Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and notice, and with every living creature that is with you. This covenant is universal, not just with believers, not just with Christians, not just with the church. It is a universal covenant with the entire world, a promise to not destroy it again with the flood, but also a a commandment to be fruitful and multiply. Some unbelievers are fulfilling the mandate more than Christians. True? True. But the entire human race is under this mandate to be fruitful and multiply. But then God gives further revelation regarding the dignity of man when he established his law. Look at Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments, as they're known, is given in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 6. Look at Exodus 20. In uh, verse 13 of Exodus 20, the Sixth Commandment says, you shall not murder. Some versions, uh, King James says, you shall not kill. The word kill is not the right word there because the Hebrew has different words for kill and murder, and it's the word for murder. You shall not murder. God is attempting to support and protect the dignity of human life by putting a hedge about it through his law. First through the Noahic covenant, but then through his law to Israel, which I believe is also... Uh, this law is also binding on us. But even if it weren't, we have the Noahic Covenant, which is binding on all. 
that human life is not to be taken, but it's to be protected by law. We also uh, see the witness to life in the New Testament, of course, uh, where it's abundant. The very life and death of Jesus is in some ways the ultimate witness to the sanctity of human life. Because Jesus died for people. Now, it's, it's, it's hard to, I mean, as Jesus himself said, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If he gains the whole world, is that a good trade? No. Jesus, so Jesus is saying that in his opinion, if you care about Jesus' opinion, his opinion, the human soul is of more value than all, all wealth. All the dignities and honors we can get in this world, all the pleasures, everything the world has to offer, the flesh, if you will, honor, power, wealth, pleasure, all of it is inferior to the value of the human soul. That's quite a statement, isn't it? That's quite a statement. And Jesus didn't say, what if all men, but what if a man? In other words, he's just talking about the value of one soul. What about the value of all? How valuable are the souls of men and women in the eyes of God? Well, we don't have to guess because we know how valuable they are because we know what God was willing to give for their redemption. What God gave for the redemption of the soul was the soul of his own beloved son, Jesus, who was both perfect man and perfect God. The one soul that should not have died the one soul that should not have been appointed unto death. This was the soul that was given for our souls. Jesus did not come as an angel or a ghost or a phantom. He came as a human being, and he experienced all the stages of humanity, and he was conceived in his mother's womb. Jesus was a fetus. Jesus was an embryo. Jesus was a newborn. Jesus was an infant, a toddler, a tween, a teen, a young man, and an adult. His incarnation shows the dignity of humanity. But not only that, because of his, because of his incarnation, and the result of it, which is our salvation and our redemption, he has elevated our dignity. Because through his death, burial, and resurrection, he has rescued us from sin. Amen? And he is now in the process of restoring us to the original image that we were to bear as created in the image of God. How valuable is a human life if Jesus would die for that life? How valuable? 
So the question becomes, how valuable, in your opinion, is the blood of Jesus? Well, in my opinion, it's priceless. It's priceless. The church has always understood this until recently. But those who believe it, those who believe in the Word of God, those who hold to the integrity of the Word of God, the inerrancy of the Word of God, these are the ones that we see standing now for life. Standing for life, as we should do today. Amen? Why don't we go ahead and stand together we're going to pray. The message of the Word of God is that human life is the handiwork of God made in His image. And it should be nourished and cherished, not unlawfully destroyed by abortion or infanticide or desertion or abandonment or oppression. And this is the testimony of the Word of God. And it's also the testimony of the historic church. This is and should be our testimony as a community. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us light in darkness by giving us your word. We thank you, Lord, that you made us in your image. And Lord, we especially thank you that through your son Jesus, you are restoring that image to its full perfection in us through uh, his redemption, as well as the sanctifying work of your Holy Spirit in us. We do pray, Lord, for our nation. We pray for the unborn children who are being led to slaughter. We pray, God, that you might have mercy upon them and deliver them. We pray, Lord, for the women who are, many of whom are just confused. Lord, we pray for, for you to provide help and rescue for them. We pray for those women who, Lord, are just hard-hearted. We ask that you might bring them to repentance. We pray, Lord, against the lies and deception in our culture that says that the unborn child is just, just a, a, a clump of cells, that it's not a person. We pray, Lord, for your truth to be broadcast throughout our land, even this very day, as Christians around the nation make a public witness to life. We thank you for the work you've done uh, through this community, this church, uh, in rescuing many uh, women and many unborn children. We pray that that would continue, Lord, and even prosper um, under your care. We thank you, Lord, that you've called us to be a prophetic church but you've also called us to be a caring and serving church. I pray that each of us, Lord, might do our part, do our part to defend the defenseless and to speak for those that do not have a voice. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.